Life of Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Book 4, Chapter 9, The Beatitudes Having made his prayerful choice of the men who were destined to be rulers in the kingdom which he had come to manifest, Jesus took an early opportunity of instructing them in the principles of that kingdom. He led the twelve to the foothills, which look back over the gleaming lake of Galilee, and upon the villages which fringed its western shore. Reaching a large plateau among the heights, he sat down in their midst and taught them. It was not long before they were joined by the multitudes which had become such a familiar sight wherever he went. The discourse which followed, familiar to us as the Sermon on the Mount, is recorded most fully by Matthew. The greatest intellects of each generation have contributed their meditations upon its teaching, but no man has ever plumbed its depths or ascended to its heights. They are words which form the basis of all righteousness. They constitute the rock upon which all Christian endeavour is built. Jesus had come to demonstrate in his life the attributes of his Father. He had come to lift the faces of the sons of men towards the fountain of light and life, to call upon them to abandon their selfish grovelling in the darkness of human ambition and willingly follow him into the cool, clear air of the Spirit, ever progressing towards the perfection embodied in the exhortation, which is the climax of the discourse, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The teaching and precepts of Jesus expressed in the clear symmetry of the Sermon on the Mount are not abstract ideals, as beautiful as mountain peaks and as remote, to be preserved and worshipped in devotional hours and ignored in the hurly-burly of daily living. They form a working philosophy of life which is the only road a disciple can tread. A steep and difficult road, truly, but one which Jesus himself was treading. Nor did he demand that his disciples should tread it alone. He reached out his hand and led them towards its summit. Jesus was teaching the twelve and the multitude of disciples who should follow them how to live on his high level. The whole discourse forms a portrait of the teacher himself. In it he reveals the secret of his life showing his disciples the way he describes the fountain from which all his own actions sprang, disclosing a heart dedicated to his Father's will. It is as important as it is interesting to consider the general structure of this discourse. Broadly, it falls into three divisions. The first, which takes us to the twentieth verse of the fifth chapter, illustrates the words, Ye are and ye have the basic character of the child of God. 
by far the largest section, continuing in the 14th verse of the 7th chapter, deals with the outward manifestation of that basic character in the vicissitudes of life, the actions which are the inevitable outcome of the spiritual condition and do not have their motives as the Pharisees to be seen of men. It is here that the twelve are repeatedly reminded of the distinction between the justice of the Mosaic law, which required obedience to the letter, and the love of the law Christ was giving them, which demanded a responsive obedience to the Spirit of grace. Finally, there follows a warning against the stumbling blocks and bypaths on the road to perfection, and a graphic parable which conveys far too vividly for complacency the fundamental importance of man's attitude to his precepts. From this broad analysis, it can readily be seen that the Beatitudes are the seed from which all the other aspects burst into radiant expression. The secret of the law of Christ does not lie in the disciple loving his enemies or in turning the other cheek. That is the natural expression of the blessed condition to which he calls them in his opening words. The man who is poor in spirit will not seek the mote in his brother's eye. He that truly mourns will not be guilty of the disfiguring deceptions of the fasting Pharisee. One who is pure in heart will have made those painful sacrifices which have deprived him of offending hands and feet and eyes. He who hungers and thirsts after righteousness will not be over-anxious to get his share of the lesser blessings of this life. As the general sermon submits to analysis, so it is possible to appreciate the symmetry of the Beatitudes themselves. The first great need of the spiritual man is poverty of spirit. From that we are able to advance along clearly defined paths towards perfection. We see the death and then the burial of self-righteousness. The blessing of meekness takes its place. Meekness prepares the heart for the flowing in of spiritual life by hunger and thirst after righteousness. Consciousness of divine gifts gives birth to a profound sense of gratitude for mercies received, a gratitude which can only be satisfied by a responsive mercy to our fellows. Purity increases with the exclusion of all that is foreign to a true reception of spiritual experience. With a singleness of desire and purpose, conflicts of loyalty cease, struggles of the flesh diminish, and the blessedness of peace fills the disciple's heart. Righteousness has ever been at enmity with evil. The more advanced our spiritual life, the more bitter will be the assaults of the powers of darkness, and the more comfort will be found in the final beatitude Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But these fundamental truths, which sum up all that Jesus has to say about discipleship, demand more than a cursory reference. To understand them and attempt to apply them is to be numbered among those who forsook all and followed him. 
The word blessed, which runs through the Beatitudes, stands not for passing joy, but for a continuing condition of the heart. Blessed are indicates an inner experience, something not controlled by circumstance or regulated by environment, a state of heart, not of life. If the listening twelve or the multitudes of listeners that have followed them can attain this blessedness which, by God's grace, is the reward of a diligent endeavour to keep these commandments, then all the circumstances, difficulties and temptations of life will be met and controlled by this condition of a heart which beats in harmony with the heart of Jesus. The first stage in discipline is poverty of spirit, a deliberate renunciation of many things which the flesh finds attractive. Immediately the way of Jesus struck away from the way of men. He taught that self-sacrifice, not self-culture, is the true vocation of those who would follow him. The disciples were shown at the outset that they had to make a choice even more important than the decision to leave all and follow him. It was impossible for them to travel upon two roads leading in opposite directions. Jesus showed them that they could not begin to accept the gifts of God until they were prepared to give up the prizes the world had to offer. The spirit that fights for its rights, that demands adequate rewards for natural endowments, may indicate worldly wisdom, but that wisdom is foolishness with God. He also showed them that the end of poverty of spirit is not poverty, it is riches. They would commence a journey which leads them high above the thoughts and ways of men to the mind of the Creator. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When the work of their master rises to its consummation at his return to the earth, it will be those who have willingly broken their lives and renounced their spirit to serve him who will be the children of the kingdom. In that day, those who have sacrificed the dubious pleasures of a godless world, manifesting a longing, never satisfied desire to enjoy the fellowship and accept the responsibility this, that Jesus offers, will receive the unspeakable gift of immortality and will shine like stars in the kingdom of his Father. Spiritual mourning is the natural outcome of the renounced spirit. When his own temporal ambitions and wants are resolved, the thoughts and activities of the disciple can turn to the need of others. He is able to share their burdens and enter into their sorrows, losing concern for himself not so much deliberately as inevitably. He begins to manifest love for others. Jesus himself had done just that. In the wilderness of Judea he had resolved his own problem. He returned to give his whole attention to the needs of men, loving them even to the uttermost. Now in that same spirit of love, he teaches them that the trials, disappointments and sorrows of many hearts are concentrated on the heart of the true disciple. 
Answering his call to a life of love and service, they are entering into the fellowship of his sufferings. The veil of tears lies before them, but by bearing the burdens of others, they would fulfil his law, and with the morning came the promise of the blessing of comfort. The literal meaning of this word comfort is strengthened by being with. This godly sorrow was to bring to his disciples a companionship more precious than his physical presence, a deep spiritual union from which they would draw strength from his strength. Thus they would receive a measure of peace and joy far exceeding the measure of their grief. Meekness is not weakness when it is the quality born of the two previous Beatitudes. The spirit of renunciation and the spirit of loving service combine to produce the man who is meek. It is a state which emerges from a breaking and softening process. To the world it sounds effeminate and tasteless, but upon the lips of Jesus the eager disciples realised that it was a quality to be found only in the bravest and strongest characters. It is not the natural meekness suggestive of tameness which belongs to the placid, easy-going, amiable man. It is the hard-earned reward of a purging spiritual experience which has demanded a high degree of courage and self-control. The blessing of meekness is inheritance. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It could not be claimed in the light of the apostles' subsequent experience that this blessing was offered to them as a present possession. The earth was under the temporary dominion of the proud and the arrogant. Already they had had evidence of the temper of those who occupied the highest places in the earth, evidence that would accumulate until their master hung on the cross. But that would not always be. Although for a season they would suffer under the injustice and cruelty of men, their inheritance remained. An heir is one who is not of age, but who is coming into his possession at some future time. Thus Jesus was sowing to his disciples' mind the seed of a truth which he was later to develop in many wonderful ways. By a strange paradox, by forsaking the world, they were to inherit the earth. This beatitude is a paraphrase of the 37th Psalm, which gives the picture of evil now prospering and the wicked flourishing as a green bay tree. The godly man is exhorted not to fret over their power, nor be envious of their prosperity. Though he suffered adversity at their hands, he must continually delight in the Lord and commit his ways unto him. The day will come when evildoers shall be cut off, and the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Although the final reward of the meek will wait upon the return to the earth of their Lord, 
the disciples would have lost the spirit of their master's words had they ignored the present spiritual compensations that they would enjoy as they strove to follow him. In the very process of their struggles, they would experience a peace-passing understanding, a fellowship and a deep sense of communion which would be for them, and can be for us an earnest of the eternal inheritance which awaits those who are the true sons of God. Book 4, Chapter 10, The Beatitudes Continued Finding life by letting it go is an emptying process. It empties the disciple of the ingredients that produce the satisfactions of the carnal mind. But a life cannot remain empty. Something is needed to take the place of those things that have been sacrificed. Blessed, said Jesus to the men who were determined to follow him. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. A man who is satisfied with the world is not a hungry man. Being full, he has no interest in spiritual food. He cannot enjoy the rich fruits of the Spirit because his capacity for enjoyment is limited by his chosen environment. Spiritual hunger no less than natural hunger is a craving which must be satisfied or we perish. It should not be necessary to be led into the darkened stillness of a death chamber to realise that all hearts are empty unless God fills them. Nor should we wait for the disillusioned confession of a broken heart to bring home to us the truth that all desires fail, except they crave after God. Appetite is quickened by the attractiveness of food. To the listening disciples on the Mount of Righteousness to which Jesus called them was not the legal righteousness of tradition, they could see that every day on the street corners. It was not even the abstract righteousness of the law. It was embodied in the one who sat in their midst. The hunger and thirst of their renounced spirit was to find its satisfaction in Christ. As their life with him grew into an abiding fellowship, so the pangs of hunger died, and their thirst was quenched. They experienced a partial fulfilment of his promise that they should be filled. It was impossible for them to tap such sources without powerful results. They did not all the same capacity, but with one exception, they were all filled. Truly there were fleshly interruptions from time to time, but these only emphasised the distance they had travelled and threw into clearer relief the goal towards which they moved. Appetite for righteousness cries out to be softened by mercy. The twelve were in little danger of losing sight in this while Jesus was with them, his hand constantly raised in blessing and restoration. 
But this many-sided picture of the mature disciple was not for that time alone, nor for those ears alone. The days were coming when he would be taken from them, and they would continue the greatest task ever committed to frail men. In turn, they would be followed by generations of disciples, each striving after the perfection which their Lord was describing in simple, trenchant words among the hills of Galilee. Without the constant lesson of Christ's example, there is a very real possibility of the heart hardening under a passion for righteousness. Rigorous self-discipline can lead to a disturbingly harsh attitude towards the feelings of others. There are few things more unlovely than the righteousness of the Pharisees of each generation. There is nothing more inspiring than righteousness matured by mercy and sympathy. Understanding of the love of God is the birthplace of a responsive love in the disciple's heart. It is responsive because it must find expression. It can no more be confined to its birthplace than the delicate loveliness of the rose can be confined within its bud. It has to burst out into fragrance and beauty, bringing charm to all those who come within its influence. Such was the life of Jesus. Such was the character he desired of those he had chosen to be with him. The first indication of the presence of this responding love is an intense desire to serve, to do something in the service of him who has done so much for us. Love for God can only find adequate expression in love for our brethren. Mercy is one of the precious fruits of love. Saddened and depressed by the burden of some sin or weakness, we sink to our knees in confession and plead for forgiveness. What words can describe the sense of relief, the subdued exultation, the peace which fills our being as we leave our burden with the Lord and experience the grace of forgiveness? The fullness and beauty of that forgiveness is the measure of God's love for us. We cannot give like God, but we can try to forgive like Him. We can only begin to achieve it by loving our fellows and having a sincere zeal for their spiritual welfare. As long as we love, we shall be able to forgive. Compelling and exacting as is the picture Jesus has so far drawn, it is not yet complete. He turned his disciples' attention now from the circumference to the centre. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Unless their heart was pure, their life could not be, however much their action seemed to suggest that it was. The natural heart, untouched by God's grace, is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That is a truth of which everyone has had personal experience. 
How is it possible to transform naturally wicked and deceitful hearts to the purity demanded by Christ and blessed with the vision of God? A large part of the answer lies in the steps of renunciation, of penitence and intercession, of meekness, of spiritual longing and of mercy that have already been taken. To have proceeded so far makes this goal nearer, and the desire for it greater. We may hope for success as we concentrate all our powers and affections on him who is absolutely and eternally pure. Purity of heart is more than the spiritual counterpart of the seventh commandment. It is not the exclusion of one form of grossness, but of all. The origin of the word is unmixed. Gold is only pure when there are no alloys left. The heart cannot be pure if its own private interests are mixed with its loyalty to God. The full beauty of the reward of purity in the vision of God is reserved for the day of glory. But blessed is he who, even in the day of weakness, so surrenders his heart to his refining discipline, that for one or two moments in a lifetime he has felt something near to it. Moments of highest aspiration when all thoughts of self have gone, and he is conscious only of the presence and power of the Father. To Jesus this must have been an abiding possession. To his disciples it can only be a rare and passing moment of sublime devotion. But it holds within it the promise of eternity. Jesus showed his disciples that the effectiveness of their work for him would be based upon the effectiveness of his work in them. As peacemakers they would be disciples who had travelled some distance along the road that led to the fullness of the stature of their Lord. A true peacemaker is far more than a composer of quarrels. The mediation between two individuals or factions striving against each other is a small part of a work of deeper significance. There is nothing negative about it. It is a glorious, creative work. It is peace-making. We cannot make peace by avoiding action or adopting a peace-at-any-price policy. Like every virtue, peace has its counterfeits. And an attitude which will allow vice to go unchecked and unattended wounds to fester is a shameful disguise. The peacemaker is not the man who betrays the selfish geniality of a comfortable Christian. Before the disciple can go forth as a peacemaker into the striving world, his own restless spirit must be quietened in the presence of God, and his own inward strifes must be stilled by the peace which is the precious gift of his Master. When that is attained, he will carry with him the blessings of peace. His presence will shed a fragrance and impart strength into the lives of all those with whom he comes in contact. 
Such men and women shall be called the children of God. The twelve living with him amid the sunlit hills and shining lake realized what he meant as he unfolded his precept in gracious words and deeds. They saw one who will one day bespeak peace to the nations, bringing peace into the hearts of simple people as he revealed to them a father of infinite love and compassion. He makes peacemakers of his disciples by giving them his peace. The disciple's character is now complete. It has emerged strong and compelling. But the world will not find it attractive. Jesus took an early opportunity of emphasising what most of the men surrounding him had already seen. It is a mistake to think that one who exhibits the qualities called forth by Jesus will spontaneously draw men to him. They will live to see how grave an error that can be as they watch the net closing around their Lord, and later when, taking up his work, they feel the full impact of men's hatred and cruelty. The measure of faithfulness will often be the measure of persecution. But Jesus showed them their true attitude in the face of persecution. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. The reason for their joy would be that they were enduring for his sake. How much easier it would be for that reason! What a difference it would make, and what an incentive it would give! In the days to come many of them were to go to prison and to death. The brave light that shone in their eyes, the courageous smile that hid their agony, would reflect the vision of the one who was now in their midst, but who would then be but a precious memory. They would die in the triumphant knowledge that they were suffering for his sake, and knowing this, they would be content. Persecution strengthens character, saves from selfishness, develops trust in God, Remembering their master, it was not so difficult for them to forget the injustice in the privilege. So the true disciple of every age sits at the feet of his Lord and learns the manner of man he would have him become. His progress becomes a triumph, not of words, but of words. The world sweeps by him largely unconcerned, but when it does take heed, it is disturbed and it persecutes. But there are always hearts waiting to be touched by the appeal of a Christ-like spirit. So the great work goes on. More powerful than the perplexities of life and the subtleties of the flesh, the disciple hears the voice of his Saviour. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world.